I was 12 when I first saw snow. I have extended family in Wisconsin, and after a decade and change without seeing snow, flurries broke out beyond my hotel room window. I had been in very cold places before. My family has origins in both Pittsburgh and Buffalo, two places known for their snowy winters. I visited those places many times growing up and also spent time in New York City and Virginia, all places where snow could occur, but it was there in Wisconsin when it first really got me. These fluffy white bushels pouring over the landscape, I built snowballs and snowmen and threw snow all over my little head. I was very pleased with myself. I've seen snow many times again since that moment, most notably along a trail in the Smoky Mountains, gray and white and peace all around, but I have a confession to make to you. Snow is beautiful, a magnificent image of fine joys and natural splendor, but for me, nothing quite gets me in the holiday spirit more than massive machines that dump fake snow made of soap onto large crowds of Floridians. That's blasphemous, I know, but every holiday season, events across the state whip out the same shtick. They pull out a tree or lights, they play carols, they serve hot chocolate and cookies. There's probably a Santa Claus under a structure with a long line that leads to him for children to get a moment with Santa. People will wear sweaters in 70 degree weather, myself especially. I have such an egregious sweater collection for someone who lives where I live, but I put that sweater on, I buy myself that hot chocolate, and I stand there and point with glee when the warmed, soapy liquid is spat through a turning bubble mechanism with a fan at the back, and the quote-unquote snow begins to fall. I'm not joking, at all. Every time it happens, every year I witness it, I am overwhelmed with joy and nostalgia. Whenever it occurs, it means the holidays are here again. Although it's been said many times, many ways, the holidays are weird in Florida. We cannot resist it, it's just an inevitable truth. But I have found that celebrating anywhere else in the country, snowy or not, it just doesn't feel quite the same as it does in Florida for me. Winter doesn't exist here, but what we do to participate actually somehow makes for a more festive holiday for me. We have to compensate for our lack of snow, our lack of pine trees, our lack of the typical trappings of holiday cheer. We do the best we can with what we've got, and that's what we're here to talk about today on this, the first annual Wait 5 Minutes Holiday Special. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This is the final episode of season five, and to celebrate the holidays and the ending of this tumultuous year, we're sharing all our favorite unique holiday experiences in the state of Florida and bringing back a few friendly faces to do so. It's hard to celebrate the winter properly in our warm peninsula, and many people throughout our history have found unusual ways to do it themselves. So gather round, no matter the weather, and enjoy this litany of stories about the peculiar joys of the Florida holidays. It's been a chilly few weeks here in the Sunshine State, this week no different. The temperature has fluctuated with nice, brisk days fit for a walk, shockingly cold days where I find myself wearing woolen socks at my desk, and sneaky warm days where the sun rising in the sky makes you regret putting on that sweatshirt when you woke up this morning. It's hard to predict exactly what one should do as the cold comes and goes, the heat rises and drops. It's part of the curse of winter in Florida, but I really can't complain. You see, I am warm-blooded. Many of our critter friends around Florida are not. 
I called up Dr. Stephen Whitfield from Zoo Miami so he could tell me about a uniquely South Florida phenomenon, wintry iguanas. As most people know, Florida is the most tropical part of the United States, and our climate is great for reptiles. Unfortunately, we have a problem where lots of species of non-native reptiles like to live here because it's so typically warm. These are things like iguanas. There's lots of different species of anoles, small lizards that in Florida you see on basically everything. Everywhere, all the time. Um, and there's lots of other species. There's chameleons and tegus and agamas. Lots of these are things that people released as pets and they found that the climate is generally nice for them here in Florida. So their populations do well and they expand. But what's particularly interesting is these are mostly tropical species. What they don't do well with is cold temperatures. And the reason you don't see iguanas and anoles in throughout the United States is that cold weather kills them off. So we have an interesting scenario in Florida. Well, first of all, mate, let me talk a little bit about kind of the biology of ectotherms, of, of cold-blooded animals and how they survive. All of us people, we're warm-blooded, we're endotherms, and our temperatures are pretty stable. My temperature is normally 98.6. If it goes over 100, I need to go to the hospital. If it goes below 97, I'm probably dead. The reptiles and amphibians, fishes, the ectotherms, are really different. They don't produce their own body heat, and instead, their body temperatures are regulated by the environment. This is why sometimes you see a lizard or a turtle basking in the sun, because they're using the sun to warm their body up. And if it's too hot during the day, they can go to a place in the shade where it's cooler. They have to actively kind of find uh, places, warm or cool spots to regulate their temperature. Each species of reptile kind of has a thermal range. They'll have an ideal temperature, and then there will be some temperature at which it's too hot for them, or some temperature at which it's too cold. And iguanas, for example, can live in Florida because it's around the right temperature, but they can't live in Michigan because it's just too cold during winters. And occasionally we have these cold snaps in Florida where it's a very good demonstration of how ectotherms can't deal with cold temperatures. In, in addition to ectotherms having a ideal temperature, everything about their physiology is regulated by temperature. So for example, a lizard at its optimal temperature can run pretty well, but if you cool it down, it will get slower and slower at cooler temperatures until at some point it just can't move. Oh, God. And what we see with iguanas and some of the anoles here in South Florida is that when it does get cold, they can't warm up and they will get so cold that they can't move. And for the iguanas, what this means is that when you're in a tree and you can't move, they'll fall out of the, they'll fall out of the trees, and we see not frozen but very cold iguanas littering the ground. <laughs> so that's a a uniquely South Florida winter event is 
cold lizards falling from the trees. I have to ask, um, is this like a is this like a dangerous thing for them? Are they like are they like going to get injured or, or die from this? So what I normally see are slow lizards on the ground and as it warms up through the day, they are exposed to some sunlight and warm up and then often walk away. If it gets really cold, it will kill them. But what's more common is for them to just fall stunned out of the trees. That That is inherently dangerous for them because if they're on the ground and can't move, then they're vulnerable to predators. It's not necessarily fatal. Are you telling me you've seen the iguanas falling from the tree? Yeah, it's actually, if you go to a place where there's lots of iguanas, you can definitely see iguanas on the ground the morning after after cold snaps. It's, it's, it's not, maybe it's just because I spend a lot of time, you know, in places where there's lots of lizards, but I don't think this is an uncommon event. I wish more than anything that I could find a defrosted iguana in my backyard, but unless I truck it down to Miami, I'll have to keep dreaming. But I'm lucky. I'm already in Florida. People have been finding themselves hoping for our warm climate for over a century, especially at the holidays. A century ago, Northern Americans would come down to Florida and buy a box of oranges to send back up to their family members during the depths of winter. Generous and a little bit taunting, this tradition is still upheld at many farms in the Indian River Fruit District to this very day, a tropical treat in the midwinter frost. My friend Melissa Proco from the Orange County Regional History Center tells me that for her family, oranges have been part of their holidays for over a century. So I grew up in Fort Lauderdale, and every Christmas we would always fly my grandparents down from Pittsburgh so that they could escape the cold winters up there. And it was one of the two times a year I got to see them. So every summer we fly to Pittsburgh to escape the heat, and then we'd bring them down to Fort Lauderdale for Christmas so they escaped the cold. And on Christmas morning, it was always very, we couldn't start opening presents until everyone was awake. And my dad notoriously slept in. So we'd have to sit and wait. And one of the few things that we were able to do before my dad woke up was we were allowed to open our stockings. And every year we'd always have an orange at the very bottom. And growing up, I was just was something I was so used to, and I didn't really ask questions. <laughs> and then I realized that that wasn't something that everyone got in a stocking. So then I did start asking questions. And it's actually a family tradition that dates back to my great-grandfather. And he was born in North Dakota in 1893. And he was one of 10 children. He grew up in North Dakota and Northern Wisconsin, where it's obviously way too cold have an orange grove there and at Christmas time there would be a train that would come from Florida once a year with oranges and it was one of the few presents they would get along with something like a pocket knife for the boys and a doll for the girls so they would always get an orange and a small present and the oranges were such a big treat since they only got them once a year and then they wouldn't get them until the next Christmas so my great-grandfather continued that tradition and did it with my grandmother and then my grandmother continued that tradition and did it with my mother. And then my mother did that with our stocking. So we always would have an orange at the very, very bottom. Are you still doing that in your in your household now that you're an adult? I do still do that. So my mother grew up in Pittsburgh. So for her, it was probably still an exciting treat to get. But by the time that we were in Fort Lauderdale, it was kind of like, well, we have these all the time. I don't really understand why we're doing this. 
Um, and I think that's kind of how my boyfriend might feel when he opens his stocking every more or every Christmas, and it always has an orange. But it is something that I still do to this day. And it's funny to think too that those oranges likely came from a grove here in Central Florida, and now a, a big part of my job is telling the Central Florida story, which is includes all of our orange growth. It's such a big part of our history. Wouldn't it be wonderful if more people would put citrus in their stockings for their kids or, or, or just in their families? How could you sell that idea to other families in Florida to get them to, to participate in that tradition? I guess it would depend. Like, if there are people who are really interested in history and knowing where we've come from, that would just be a way to frame it. Of like, look, where you live now is likely once an orange grove whether it was a commercial one or a personal one that someone just kept in their backyard. Oranges are, and citrus is such a large portion of our history, and it's, if there's any time to celebrate our history, why not do it around the holidays? It's that bizarre dichotomy that we have across this entire country, actually. People in the cooler states romanticize a warm holiday and vice versa. Irving Berlin himself, the composer of White Christmas, frames the entire song through the lens of someone in a warm state through an oft-forgotten opening verse. Quote, The sun is shining, the grass is green, the orange and palm trees sway. End quote. He was, of course, singing from California, not Florida, but many people have adapted his version to fit the Sunshine State. Many of our residents, myself included, love our green Christmases. As journalist and author and all-around Florida polymath Craig Pittman tells me, we've had some truly spectacular shows of festive spirit through the years. People don't really necessarily think of Florida and Christmas together. You never see a Hallmark Christmas movie set in Florida, which is a shame. That's such a shame. It's so ripe. It's so ripe for Hallmark. I know, because Florida really does have some distinctive holiday traditions. We've got the illuminated boat parades. We've got golf cart parades. We've got the surfing Santas, snow globes containing nothing but water and a floating top hat. It's a sign that says Florida snowman. (laughs) But there was a time when Florida regularly boasted of being the home, not just of a town called Christmas, but also home of the world's largest decorated Christmas tree. And this all started in 1971 with a guy named Generoso Pope Jr., people called him Gene Pope, in the town of Lantana in Palm Beach County. He made sure that Lantana had a tree that stopped traffic on the highway and attracted visitors for miles around. In fact, the one he put up in 1979 measured 117 feet tall. And the Guinness Book of World Records declared it to be the world's largest. And and then he topped it in successive years. He built, he put, brought in larger and larger trees. The last one, which was unveiled about 30 years ago, measured 126 feet tall, and it was topped by a six-foot lighted silver star, and it featured about 300,000 lights. So you can see why people on the highway would pull over and go, Martha, golly, you know. <laughs> so so you know you're probably wondering who was this right jolly old elf who would bring in this massive Christmas tree every year. Well, um, Generoso Pope Jr., better better known to his friends as Gene, was none other than the founder and publisher of the National Enquirer, the outlandish scandal sheet that defined the term supermarket tablet. He, he's sort of a, he, you know, he's sort of an unlikely source of holiday hoopla. When the guy was growing up in New York, his godfather was literally the godfather, my boss, Frank Costello. His 
dad was in like the rock hauling business, wink, wink. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but, but Pope graduated from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology at age 19. He worked for the Central Intelligence Agency in Psychological what? Ops. And then in 1952, when he was 25, he borrowed money from Costello to buy a newspaper that was then called the New York Inquirer. It was on the verge of bankruptcy, and he renamed it the National Enquirer. He converted it to an easier-to-handle tabloid size and started running these, running these eye-grabbing headlines like, I cut out her heart and stomped on it. <laughs> <laughs> and he said he drew his inspiration from watching how people would slow down to look at a gory car wreck. <laughs> and, but then, but then in 1960, he discovered that celebrity news drew even more attention. So the headlines start, you know, focusing on Hollywood gossip and stories about psychics, UFOs, the abominable snowman. And he started selling them in supermarket checkout lines instead of newsstands, which is the real key to the popularity. So in 71, that's the same year Walt Disney World opened, Pope moved, moved his whole operation down to Florida and put up his first Christmas tree. And and he, uh, by the way, he's also the guy who founded the Weekly World News, which is the publication that told us Elvis was still alive. Right. Which, you know, that's a, that's a great Christmas gift for everyone. He spent six days a week at the Inquirer, checking the paper, making, he write, he would personally write headlines and so forth. He would actually go out and measure the height of the grass blades in the lawn to make sure the maintenance crew was cutting it right. Um, <laughs> and he was such a thrifty guy. I mean, this is a guy who would who would squeeze a penny until Lincoln screamed. But he just really, he really loved Christmas, and he loved putting up that tree every year. And it was sort of Lantana's big claim to fame is, we've got the National Enquirer, and we've got the world record Christmas tree every year. Unfortunately, Pope died, and a conglomerate bought the paper. They, uh, they stopped putting up the tree, I'm sorry to say. So, and then eventually they moved the, moved the whole thing up to, uh, back up to, to New York. So, it's no, no, Lantana no longer has that, that uh, distinction of being the home of the world's biggest scandal sheet and the world's biggest Christmas tree. But, I, you know, I, I think it would be great if, uh, if somebody would renew that tradition. Because, you know, just the idea of a Christmas tree in Florida is pretty wacky anyway. And to have the, one, the largest one in the world be there. You know, that's 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 about as Florida as you can get, <laughs> really. Well, I grew up in Pensacola where we would get a, a light dusting of snow at least maybe once or twice a year, but that was it. Never enough to stick. And I was perpetually disappointed that, you know, our, our landscape didn't look anything like the ones I was seeing on TV. I'm like, how am I going to make frosting a snowman when there's no, there's no snow? Instead, it would routinely rain really hard around Christmas oh in Pensacola. Gosh. The joke me and my my high school buddies came up with was we would start singing I'm dreaming of a wet Christmas instead of a white Christmas that's that's, um, that's pretty good hey that's a pretty good joke <laughs> that's a good joke that's still that's still a good joke <laughs> and it's not always quite so secular some people have found something even more divine in their holiday seasons the next story is incredible. I can't believe I've never heard it before. And our next guest is the perfect person to tell that story. Our pal, making her sixth overall appearance in the entirety of Wait 5 Minutes, Gabrielle Khaleesi from the Tampa Bay Times. Happy holidays, bud. What are you, How are you? I'm good. You... I say as if we haven't just been talking for 20 minutes. <laughs> hey, you have eggnog. I do. I have my almond milk eggnog. It's heated up. I put a sprinkle of nutmeg on top. Let's rock and roll. Okay, so what do, what do you know about Our Lady of Clearwater? Well, you've sent me the pictures, so I've seen the pictures, and that's really it. I kept myself blind to the story 
because I wanted to experience it live and in person with Gabrielle Khaleesi. Okay, so this is the most, like, Christmas miracle of all miracles that could have happened. So on December 17th, 1996, this is when we uh, see a miracle happen in Clearwater. So there is this glass building. At the time, it was called Seminole Finance Corporation. And in the morning, there's just these weird rainbow swirls that, that start to pop up. And people look at it, and they're like, hey that's the Virgin Mary. And like, it kind of does look like the Virgin Mary. So you have like, you know, the, the top swirl that looks like a head and it's kind of glowing. And then you have sort of her body. It looks like maybe like a shirt and people just like go bonkers. And it all started when this guy who was a customer at the building called the local news channel, channel 10. And he was like, you gotta look at this. This is wild. So they put it on the noon report and like, Within hours, there were just, like, dozens of people in the parking lot. And by midnight, there was at least 500 people. And so then it just, like, snowballed. And you have to understand, like, so this is, like, 1996, pre-internet. The way that this spread, just based on, like, local news reports and word of mouth, is absolutely bonkers when you think about the fact that, like, people were not putting this on social media. Like, I think if people could put this on social media it probably would have been even bigger but also people just like wanted to go and see it and say that they'd been there so in the next couple weeks more than 600,000 people went to this parking lot and like looked at the glass mary and it wasn't just like they would go and be like oh wow we're by mary so they're bringing flowers they're lighting candles they're crying they're laying on the ground they're praying there was even a couple that got married there and so of course it's like this big spectacle and in true Florida fashion, people are like, let's put it on t-shirts and make some money. So you have like all these illegal vendors that are trying to sell stuff. And there's like the nearby car wash that's, you know, selling t-shirts. And there's the city is trying to figure out like, how are we going to handle all the traffic? So they're installing portable restrooms and like sort of making these makeshift sidewalks so that like police can come and do crowd control. It was completely bonkers. So one of the really fun things that I did last year around the holidays was I chatted with some of the Tampa Bay Times reporters and photographers that covered it. I chatted with Wilma Norton, who is fantastic. She remembered that like, you know, a lot of people for them like genuinely thought that it was a Christmas miracle. One of my favorite things that I learned while reporting about this story was the great lengths that our newspaper went to to understand what created those rainbow swirls in the glass. So they talked to a glass installer who was like, no, no, this is divine intervention. And they talked to an architect whose company literally designed the building. And he was like, I've never seen that happen before. And I've never seen that happen since. And I've been designing buildings for 40 years. And But my very favorite thing is the Tampa Bay Times, then the St. Petersburg Times, hired a, a chemist to inspect the glass he found all these clues he found like a broken sprinkler head and he like looked at the water deposits and he was like no okay this is a combination of of the deposits and the weathering and it's some sort of chemical reaction between the glass and the elements meanwhile a spokesperson for the archdiocese of st petersburg was like no this is not true and people should exercise skepticism the Florida Department of Transportation also released a photo of the building from a couple years prior from a real estate appraisal. And it showed that there was that rainbow image already visible. So that sort of is like, it triggered some skepticism, but it didn't matter. Like this still was like a Christmas miracle. And that is like our story and we're sticking to it. Uh, everything was fine, you know, like eventually like the, the fanfare sort of died down. So there was a bunch of vandals that came by and they actually like 
spilled liquid onto the face and the image was distorted but then there was a, a couple days of thunderstorms and the image bounced back so it just became this very weird thing and it was still standing up until 2004 when there was a, a troubled teenager who used a slingshot and shattered the windows and people were so upset they cried they had vigils it was just this terrible terrible thing but you know even though like the the top window with her face was gone the bottom swirls still remained and to this day it's just this like thing that people that have lived in the area for a long time remember so it's super fun to write about and i just i love everything about it it's fascinating fascinating christmas story somehow i think that's a perfect example of what we do here in florida we find meaning in things that may not mean the same for others we find ways to celebrate ways to find joy with those around us and the place that we're in and we've never needed that more than we do right now. One magical year, long before I was born, Florida had an unusual sort of holiday. You see, the winter came to us. And our final story in this special holiday episode, archaeologist Blue Nelson tells me about his Florida White Christmas. I guess, for me, my most memorable Christmas memory, especially regarding Florida was the second Christmas that I actually spent in Florida was 1989 and it snowed. Now I've lived here ever since and I have seen maybe a flurry since then. And I mean a flurry since then. But in 1989, we got a dusting of snow in Jacksonville that completely shut the area down. Now you keep in mind, you got a bunch of Southerners that used to driving on the dirt roads, and they weren't used to driving on ice, and everything was just completely iced up. And so my family decided on this day we were going to drive to the Orange Park Mall to go look for Christmas gifts. The Orange Park Mall was a 13-mile drive from Middleburg where we lived. It took five hours to drive that <laughs> to drive that link and when we got to the orange park mall it was so packed we decided hey we're going home which took i can't even remember how long because i fell asleep on the ride back but i can tell you i can remember watching people in the old uh toys r us parking lot where there was a, a kind of steep incline I watched car after car after car try to make it into Toys R Us to get gifts for their kids for Christmas, and they just spun their wheels on this incline until they slid back into the car behind them. And then the car behind them would try the exact same thing. So Floridians were not learning their uh, lesson that day. And the only thing I can remember was the snow was really cool when we got home because my brother and I were like sliding down the driveway you know like the, the wheelie shoes or whatever but you know we were just kicking it down the driveway sliding that was the last time pretty much the first and last time that we had a winter even close to a white christmas in florida but any kind of winter wonderland in northeast florida had you seen snow before that i i had seen snow before that uh for Three years uh, as a child, uh, my dad was stationed in Wisconsin, so I saw snow for three years of my life. Uh, other than that, before we lived in Jacksonville, Florida, we lived in Jacksonville, North Carolina. So again, it was another thing where there, it didn't snow there either, except 
one year, like in 1980. <laughs> we happened to live there when that happened too. So I lived in Jacksonville, North Carolina, when they got their big freak snowstorm in 79 or 80. And then, uh, and then in Jacksonville, Florida, when they got theirs in 89. The freak snowstorms were just following you around the country, Blue. Imagine that it started snowing tomorrow in florida imagine if that happens do you think we would be more prepared now than we than we were in 1989 no no we would not be more prepared <laughs> i think if we had another snowstorm tomorrow the news stations would talk about the lessons that we should have learned from 89 but i think it's so 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 ancient history now that it the history the past would just repeat itself it would be gridlocked all across jacksonville people would be spinning trying to go uphill knowing they can't uh no i don't i don't think <laughs> i don't think anybody's learned their lesson when i asked you for a holiday story and you came this one came to mind is there a reason for that is there a, is there a sort of sentimental value you have to this really specific memory that you have uh, you know it my grandparents used to come over and visit uh, my, my family's uh, Londoners. They live in England. And so Christmas time was the time that I didn't I get to see my family. And so Christmas time was always the most special time of the year for me. My family had come over Christmas time and my household was wearing shorts and sitting on the back porch and eating Christmas dinner because Florida, right? But that one in particular was really special because my grandparents were over and then it snowed so it was kind of like this 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 double whammy you know it's like it was it was the perfect christmas for me at least at the time you know we 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 had a white christmas and i got to have two of my favorite people in the whole world there with me my family was here when that snow fell there were rolling blackouts across central florida and my parents who had just begun dating were nervous about how to get through the day Both had left their northern cities years ago. Now, with snow in the sunshine state, they weren't quite sure what to do. When I mentioned Blue's story to them, they all began regaling me with tales of the winter of 1989, that unusual day, all those years ago. I resisted the urge to remind them that I'd heard all those stories before. I just liked hearing them tell it all, again. And I suppose that's what I love most about the holidays. I watch the same movies, I hang the same ornaments, I continue the same traditions. We make the same food, sing the same songs, search for those familiar sensations that make us feel at home. My favorite holiday tradition that I do every year is, perhaps, roaming in a car through neighborhoods with a hot coffee, searching for lights on people's homes, exploring far neighborhoods I'd never seen before. Just this year, my father and I looked at the lights at City Hall, my mother, stepfather, and I sought out a particular dancing light spectacular, my grandmother called me in the middle of the day so I could come replace her decorations on her porch. It's not all decorations, but it seems to be a unifying factor of some of my most joyful times spent with my little family pod. The lights bring it together for me. We've done it all for years gone by and we'll do it for years to come. I hope that in the last few days of 2020, you spend the time celebrating the good things we carry on, the good things that came before, your traditions, your happy memories. Whether that's oranges at the bottom of a stocking, surprising snow flurries, massive Christmas trees, or everyday miracles, or even the phenomenon of frozen, falling iguanas. We spent the whole last season of Wait 5 Minutes discussing the unknown things, the unfamiliar fears that hide out of sight. The holidays at this time of year were created centuries ago to be a light in the darkness, to keep us warm in the coldest times. I hope 
your light this year is enough. I hope it keeps you warm. I hope this helped. And I hope that when the longest night of the year has come and gone, we will once again be on our way out of the dark. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. If you are brand new to the show, or even if somehow this is your first episode, welcome. There are some really incredible stories waiting for you. If you're looking for a good place to jump in, you don't need to go all the way back to the beginning. All of the people you've heard in this episode have been on the show before. You should check out their episodes. They're the reason that this show exists. And you should go back and listen to season five. There were some amazing stories in the last few months. I really appreciate all of you listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review below. It helps the show become more visible, and it means the world to me. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com, and you can follow my personal account on Twitter at WFMNick. I look forward to hearing from you. Our friends at the Orange County Regional History Center have two major events going on that I'd like to promote. First of all, their exhibit, Yesterday This Was Home, tells of the harrowing events of the Okoe Massacre back in 1920. It's fascinating and essential, and it's open at the center until February 14th of next year. Additionally, if you're looking for a good Christmas present, they're currently holding an auction until this upcoming Sunday, the 20th. Check out both of those events at the link below. While you're at it, if you're looking for a last minute present, might I recommend Cat Tale by Craig Pittman, a fascinating read. You've got to check it out. I'd also like to give a very special thank you to the guests this week. Dr. Stephen Whitfield of Zoo Miami, Melissa Procco from the Orange County Regional History Center, Gabrielle Khaleesi of the Tampa Bay Times, my friend Blue Nelson, and of course, Craig Pittman. If you want to see more of their work, I've included some links. They are some of the most talented people in the state. I'm so lucky that they agreed to talk to me this week. Go check them out. And I'd also like to thank all the guests from the entirety of Season 5. Elizabeth Duran-Gessner, Dr. William Kern, Nicole Zampieri, Kelly Van Patten, Seth Weitz, and Brian Failer. This season wouldn't have existed without them. All the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find more of their fabulous music at the link below. I'll be back with Season 6 in the new year. I am so excited for all of the adventures that await us in 2021 with more explorations of the phenomenal culture and fascinating histories that define us. I can't wait to see what's next. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Wear a mask when you go outside. And please, drink more water. Happy holidays and have a very happy new year. See you soon. Thank mm-hmm. you.